Welcome to Unpublished Ottawa's new podcast, I'm Ed Hand, with Jennifer McIntosh. UnpublishedOttawa.com is Canada's only social media website dedicated to current affairs. Launched in the spring of 2013 by founder James O'Grady, Unpublished Ottawa was created to provide a viral communications platform to help Canadians, community groups, and organizations get their message out to a larger audience online and through social media. Originally conceived to help answer the question, what happens to 95% of letters to the editor that never get published, Unpublished Ottawa has expanded its content types over the years to also include internet comments, op-eds, blogs, rants, announcements, and invitations. The site supports YouTube videos, as well as audio and PDF files, so contributors can put their best foot forward. Over the next few months, Unpublished Ottawa will be expanding its offerings. This podcast is the first in a series of new and exciting things we'll be doing. Our hope is to engage Canadians on current affairs and issues that impact their daily lives, providing an unfiltered perspective, free of bias and political partisanship. Today's episode, we look at the city of Ottawa and its inability to get LRT on track, and Me Too, and the impact on Canadian politics. The Me Too movement burst into our consciousness in late 2017 with the accusations against Hollywood movie producer Harvey Weinstein and actor Kevin Spacey. And those seemed to spark an awakening or an end to hiding from the past. From there, demonstrations and protests sprouted up with the social media hashtags of Me Too and Time's Up. But it's not just Hollywood that's been dragged in front of the mirror. Media and politics as recently as a week ago at Queen's Park and on Parliament Hill. The list of names continues to grow with no sign of slowing down. Now, the colors of this issue appear to be black and white, but when you peer a little deeper, you'll notice there are many shades of gray. We're going to hear more about Me Too and Time's Up. And joining us on the Unpublished Ottawa podcast will be Caroline Andrew, Director with the Center of Governance at the University of Ottawa. She tells us more about the impact on politics and politicians. Not every woman is on board with these movements. Cries of... Where's the due process are coming from predominantly men, but there are women who have had their Me Too moments and feel this is going too far. Sue Ann Levy of Post Media joins us later to discuss. Starting us off on our inaugural podcast, which will drill down further on the Me Too movement, is Julie Lalonde. Julie is an educator of young people, social activist, and advocate for women. She's walked the walk many of these women have before, and Julie joins us in Unpublished Ottawa. Julie, when the Weinstein-Spacey accusations come out, did you anticipate this would just be the tip of the iceberg? I definitely knew from past experience that the second that one person breaks their silence on sexual violence, you end up inevitably seeing other people coming forward. I mean, in Canada, we saw that post-Gomeshi, for example. But I certainly did not anticipate the high-level nature of the new stories that came out, the fact that these were big, powerful men who were also suffering consequences as a result of women coming forward. That's what's really new about this conversation. Do you feel we're still on just the tip of the iceberg? I absolutely think that we still have a long way to go and that we're going to hear about some pretty big, explosive stories. Um, Here in Canada, for example, we're talking again about the realm of politics. There are lots of rumors that there are going to be more big, high-profile politicians taken down, uh, not just, you know, the Patrick Browns, but others. 
So I do think that, yeah, this is absolutely the tip of the iceberg, and we're going to continue to see it spread through various sectors, not just politics and Hollywood, um, but, you know, we've seen it already in the restaurant industry here in Ottawa, for example. Some big kitchen managers have been taken down. Um, the education sector, the sports world, like, I think we're going to keep seeing this kind of ripple across all sectors of society. Is this about empowering women uh, or, uh, well, in some cases, some people say it looks like you're just trying to get even. Well, what we know is that about 4% of sexual assault allegations are false. And of those, about 50% actually name somebody. So that means 90, you know, a good 96% of sexual assault allegations are proven to be truthful. Um, and of the, you know, four that aren't, two out of, out of them are actually people who name the person that they're accusing, which means the vast majority of the time people are telling the truth. Uh, and even when they're not telling the truth, the idea that it's because they're just trying to take a good man down Half the time, that's not even the case, right? So it is a myth. It's an absolute myth that women come forward with these stories just because they're trying to take a good man down. And I think we need to pause and think about the fact that that makes sense because until very recently, you weren't taking these people down, right? I mean, we have people like Woody Allen or even Roman Polanski who was charged um, and yet is still lauded by Hollywood as this brilliant director um, so the idea that you could just say someone assaulted you and that person's going to be put in jail without a trial and they're never going to find work again, I'm not seeing that happen. Um, and so where are these concerns coming from? It's, it's born from the fact that we want to keep these people silent. Julie Lalonde is joining us on Unpublished Ottawa. And I've been reading recently that sexual assault survivors are now, more of them are coming forward with their own stories. In some cases, some of these incidents are, are decades later and, you know, you mentioned off the top that, you know, once one uh, says something, more start coming out, more snowballing. Is that the same situation here? Absolutely. I mean, we're only, that's 2018. And, you know, it's only now becoming safer for people to come forward. And even then, I mean, the woman who came forward against Kent Hare, for example, MP Kent Hare, she uh, has said that she's received death threats as a result. So, I mean, the idea that it's safe for everybody is, is also a myth. But, of course, I mean, if you were sexually assaulted, 10, 20, 30 years ago, it was a completely different world in which you just weren't believed. Um, and so I think it's important for us to recognize that people kept quiet for a long time because it wasn't safe to come forward. Um, and additionally, in Canada, we don't have a statute of limitation around sexual violence for a reason, because you shouldn't, you should have the time that you need in order to process what happened to you and to figure out how you want to proceed. And that includes children and young people. Um, the expectation that people who've been sexually abused as children are going to come forward right away is very naive, and it's a very damaging myth that unless you came forward right away, you're lying. Um, we need to have a conversation about the climate. Like, was it safe in the 80s and 90s or 60s and 70s to come forward and say that someone, particularly someone powerful, sexually abused you? Of course it wasn't safe, and now it is safe. So they want to tell their stories. Now, to some people, uh, predominantly men from my, what I've heard, but not all, and you know, you look at Margaret Atwood or Christy Blatchford or Rosie DeMano, they see a lack of due process. Does it not concern you that these people are being tried in, in the court of public opinion and not getting their side heard? Well, who are they referring to specifically? If you're talking about someone like Stephen Galloway in the context of the Margaret Atwood debacle, well, there was an investigation that found that he admitted to slapping a student across the face in a pub, for example. Is that somebody that we think should be in positions of power? I would say no. 
And the same thing goes with Patrick Brown. I mean, people have been taken down in the political realm for having consensual affairs, for being terrible at managing budgets, um, for just not looking the part. I mean, the political world, people can be seen deemed unfit to be a political candidate or a political leader for all kinds of reasons that are not criminal. And in the case of Patrick Brown in particular, I mean, it's important to recognize that his staff encouraged him to resign based on information that was presented to them. And when he refused to, they quit. So when your own inner circle that has stood by you through thick and thin says, I don't want to be associated with you based on what I've heard, that, that, these are not just hearsay rumors, right? That is concrete evidence. Politics is a blood sport, and, and you know, just the, the possibility uh, of, uh, you know, something negative or derogatory towards the person which would reflect on the party could throw a bunch of people under the bus. Perhaps, but I think um, what we have these conversations about politics, right, in particular, that's why it's more difficult for people to come forward when they've been sexually assaulted by a political candidate because there's already an expectation that this was planted by the opposition. I mean, in Ontario, right, we're in the middle of a provincial election. So, of course, right away we heard this is coming from Kathleen Wynne's camp. They're just trying to take him down. So imagine you're someone who's been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed by this person, and your motivations are being questioned more than just the average survivor. The assumption is you're just trying to get ahead, um, you know, and trying to step on him to make your way up to the top, or you're trying to win an election. And it's just gross. Like, let's really think about the consequences that these people go through. I mean, and if you look at Patrick Brown's press conference, he made it very clear that he was going to pursue these people with all the power that he had. And this is someone who is the leader of an opposition. And the women who came forward were, you know, mere staffers. So we have to talk about that power dynamic um, and the fact that in, with Patrick Brown in particular, right, your own people refused to stand by you based on what they had seen and heard. So this idea that he's this poor victim, it's like, no, he put himself in that position. How has social media impacted this issue in the movement? Social media to me is a megaphone. Um, women have been talking amongst themselves. Women have been sharing their stories. Women have been warning each other about abusive men for quite some time. I mean, this dates back to women writing names of bad dates on bathroom walls, right? Like, we've been trying to warn each other and keep each other safe for quite some time. And now we have a megaphone, a way to amplify our voices. And then additionally, I think there's kind of a symbiotic relationship with traditional media, where you have traditional journalists looking on social media to say, okay, you know, what are people talking about? Like, it's a great way for media to kind of keep their finger on the pulse. And that's why I think we've seen more complex social issues being addressed in the, in the media because you have the media saying, oh, look, people are interested in talking about sexual violence as an abuse of power. Oh, people are interested in talking about coercion or issues of race or police brutality. Like, all of these things have come forward into the mainstream media because they have a way of sort of tapping into, it's basically focus groups, right? Like, you're able to sort of see what do people care about in Ontario or Ottawa or wherever? And I think that's how we've been able to see a kind of level of nuance to conversations because it's coming from the ground up. Me too, and time's up. Uh, the, 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 basically, the movements right now, where do you see these leading? I think we're going to continue to have conversations across different sectors, as I said. I'm hopeful that we're going to continue to have them in a nuanced way. The Aziz Ansari story, for example, was a really important teaching moment for a lot of folks because what he did didn't really necessarily constitute as a criminal act, but it struck a chord with a lot of women as this is a really bad experience that I've had. And as an educator, the number one thing I hear from young women is about coercion specifically. Well, coercion is a more nuanced conversation than yes means yes and no means no. And that's the kind of level of 
dialogue that I want to see us continuing to have that I think we will have if the media continues to, to talk about these issues and continues to treat it as a delicate matter. Um, my only concern about the Me Too movement is not about the movement itself, but the way in which it's reported. Traditionally, the people covering these stories were people who were grounded in the issues, who had a concrete understanding of how language matters in every single word choice and providing evidence. And now it's the main story. So you have people who are not familiar with it who are like, yeah, that's my beat now. And I'm really concerned that someone is going to out or expose or make this big, you know, think they have this big scoop. They're going to report it very poorly and they're going to undermine all of the other survivors and victims out there who, you know, they're going to contribute to this delegitimization. So that's my only concern is like, we got to make sure that when we report on these stories that we do it with sound journalism. Good point. Good point. Julie, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Julie Lalonde is an educator of young people. She's a social activist and an advocate for women and a founder with Hollaback Ottawa. As I mentioned off the top of the show, the Me Too and Time's Up movements aren't exactly black and white. There are many shades of gray when you see the different accusations. The stark point that's come out of this, and not just noted by men, but some women as well, is the lack of due process. For some of the accused, they've yet to get their day in court, yet they've already been convicted in the court of public opinion. One voice that is concerned with the movement and that it may be getting out of control is Sue Ann Levy. She's a columnist with Post Media. Sue Ann, you say the Me Too movement is getting out of control. Why do you feel that way? Because I think that, you know, what I'm seeing now is that every woman with an axe to grind, perhaps from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, a man looked at them in the wrong way, perhaps touched them in the wrong way, when the era was very, very different. Because I lived through the 90s when people were, you know, uh, I lived through many of my own Me Too movement, uh, Me Too moments. And, you know, the problem is that women are coming forward and the uh, alleged uh, perpetrators are being tried and convicted and sentenced on social media without an opportunity to respond. And the reason I wrote the column I did was because I saw um, a colleague in the media also being accused of something from 10 years ago and have, has been put on leave, and I fear that he will never return to the TV network. He's a really, really good reporter, a decent guy, and um, hasn't have an, had an opportunity to tell perhaps his side of the story. And this is what I'm seeing, that, you know, men are being uh, thrown, uh, flung out, hung out to dry with no chance to respond. You know, I've heard some women who, who share your views say, you know, there is a difference between rape and regret. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, I, I'm speaking from somebody who's had many Me Too moments over the years. I mean, I was assaulted and left for dead at 21. Uh, I was sexually assaulted in 2004. I couldn't believe that lightning would strike twice. Uh, had to fight the legal system and uh, the, the police to get my day in court in, from the sexual assault. Uh, they never caught the perpetrator in the first case. And then, you know, I, as I said, I lived through the 90s and working in a newsroom in the 90s and, and even in the 80s before I joined uh, the newspaper, um, you know, I was fired by a, a boss for not socializing with him. And uh, I was stalked by a colleague um, when I was, uh, you know, once I joined the media. So, I mean, <laughs> am I going to bring forward all that now? And, and label these people, I mean, it's done. It was a very different era then. 
You know, in the instance of Patrick Brown, it seems his alleged crime is just a lack of judgment. Is that the way you see it? I think very much so. I think he was a frat boy. I think he uh, was perhaps emboldened by his power as an MP. He was young. Um, he had a high libido, as it was explained to me by a party insider, and he acted on that. And everybody knew he was a womanizer, um, and perhaps uh, he shouldn't have been frequenting this bar in Barrie and, and, and going after much younger women. Perhaps uh, it's questionable whether they were even of legal age, but I would also question why these women were in the bar in the first place. Um, but it, it speaks to judgment more than anything. And, and the problem is that if, you know, I, I have two minds here, because if you ha are you the least bit ambitious, I'm not always proud of what I did many, many years ago, but I can't say that I was, you know, frequenting bars. And, you know, if you're the least bit ambitious, as he is, you have to be really, really careful. Having said that, um, I don't think he got his day in court, and I suspect he never will get his day in court. No, you had mentioned uh, you'd had several Me Too moments in, in your career. Uh, were they all in the media? No, no. Um, the the boss that uh, fired me, um, and I sued him for wrongful dismissal, um, was before I joined the media. It was in my uh, first career in PR, and um, he wanted me to go out for dinner with him. He wanted me to, you know, socialize with him, and I said no. And I was only in my twenties, and you didn't listen. It was uh, it was the 80s, and you didn't know how to handle those things then. It was. A very, very different, and it was accepted. And, um, you know, and even when I went to um, the lawyer to sue for wrongful dismissal, I mean, you know, they kind of looked at me like I was crazy uh, for wanting to sue, but the, they took the case and we made a settlement and all that kind of jazz. But, you know, it was, uh, like I said, a very different era, and it was kind of accepted. You say it was a different era, um, and it was accepted, and I remember those those days in the 80s. I'm wondering, do you think the big difference right now in, in this is, is all social media? It's very much social media. Um, things can spiral out of control. And, you know, I've said many, many times that I think social media is a blessing and a curse. Uh, it certainly gets the story out quickly, uh, but it's a curse because um, it gets the story out too quickly, and uh, it doesn't give people who perhaps are attacked uh, a chance to respond um, before it kind of spirals out of control. And I've seen that happened, happens, particularly in this case, uh, but I've seen that happen many times in other instances. Sue Ann Levy is joining us, an unpublished Ottawa columnist with Post Media. And uh, Sue Ann, you know, uh, Catherine Deneuve and, and, and Bridget Bardot had come out and they said that, you know, the movement's gone too far, saying women have always used their appearance and appeal but both are from France. Do you think that's a cultural thing? Well, you know, there are <laughs> – I have said many times that I much prefer working for a man because um, sometimes you, you just don't know where a woman is coming from. And there are – I mean, I've run across women in my lengthy career who have used their uh, sexuality to, to move ahead. I mean, you know, <laughs> let's be honest here. But uh, I'm going to talk about the way women dress because I'm not going to go there. I think, you know, I'm, I'm very – concerned about some of the judges who have said some pretty awful, chauvinistic, misogynistic things about, well, she deserved it because she dressed that way. Nobody deserves anything. Um, however, 
You know, um, there there are women who know that they can use their attractiveness and whatever to get ahead. It's just a reality. How do you see the the Me Too and the and the uh, Times Up movements? How do you see that impacting the workforce now? Oh, I think men are going to be very, very. Uh, you know, if if I'm not particularly proud of my own sex right now, particularly what I call the feministas um, who are pushing this agenda. And I think um, it could really uh, backfire against uh, women who are crying for equality. We have equality. I don't feel that, uh, I mean, I have a very powerful position at a paper. I, you know, I have a column. I have a platform. I don't feel that, um, you know, that uh, the slightest bit um, undervalued as a woman. And I think that, you know, these women who are crying oppression and crying, you know, me too, me too, me too, um, better be careful because I think it, as I said, could backfire. And, and men may be afraid to either hire women in, in high positions or even to come near them um, in any way or interact with them in any way for fear they'll be um, labeled um, and um, unjustly accused. You know, Mike Pence, it's funny, everybody laughed at Mike Pence when he said he didn't want to um, have uh, eat out with or go to a bar or whatever with any woman other than his wife. They were all laughing at him, but this is what it's coming to. Yeah, yeah, actually, that's exactly what I was going to say next. You know, Mike Pence is almost uh, uh, ahead of the curve on this one. Yes, he certainly was, and everybody <laughs> laughed at him. You know, he thought they were, they thought he was ridiculous, but this is what it's coming to, I'm afraid. And you know, it's, it's, last year I attended this women's rally, and this is before the Me Too movement kind of gathered steam and, and you know, and has become what I call a runaway train. Um, I went to this women's rally um, in March of last year um, at U of T, and, you know, there was a variety of women of color, a visible minority, you know, and, and they all got up on stage and they're screaming oppression, they're racialized, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, we don't have it so bad. We really don't. I, I don't understand. What the heck are you talking about? They were they seemed to me like they were a bunch of man haters and, and this is what's coming across. Sue Ann, I, I wanna thank you for uh, sharing your story and your column and, and joining us. Thank you very much. We thank Sue Ann Levy for sharing her stories and her opinions. Sue Ann Levy is with Post Media. The Me Too and Time's Up movements have not only brought down powerful men in the entertainment industry, but has exploded on the political world here in Canada. Kent Hare and Aaron Weir on Parliament Hill, Patrick Brown in Ontario, Jamie Bailey of Nova Scotia. All three major parties have been hit. In the case of Ontario, the accusations come as the PC party was to embark on a provincial election campaign. And now instead of focusing on the election, they've been plunged into a leadership race. The accusations against Brown he has denied and maintains he will defend himself. Interim leader Vic Fideli has asked him to take a leave of absence. Caroline Andrew is the director with the Center of Governance at the University of Ottawa, and she joins us to discuss the impact on politics. Caroline, it's not like we haven't had scandals in politics before. Why is this movement spreading like wildfire now? I think it's spreading like wildfire, and that's a really great analogy because it speaks uh, to a generation who get their information from the social media, from from the 
from visual things. It speaks to an audience that no longer has the same reference points, I think, to politics. But it's been a while coming. In fact, I was amused this morning because on the radio they were saying that it was four years to the day when the the hockey players from Ottawa U were uh, being, were, being accused of sexual violence when they were playing up north. And and I think what started then, and I think it's an interesting thing, is that uh, when the university heard that, they immediately canceled the team, canceled the coach, and called for a full investigation. And, in fact, I led that, uh, that investigation, which was on... Uh, ending sexual violence at the University of Ottawa. And it was an interesting process because Rock really called it and said, you know, we're not going to stay hidden with this. We're going to go absolutely public. We're going to do, we're going to figure out what we have to do to get our, uh, to get the university in shape. And I think he, he did it. And it was, and I know from him that one of the things he found really fun is when he would go to the meetings of the presidents of the universities of Ontario, and there would always be somebody saying to him, oh, too bad, Alan, our campus is so safe, too bad yours has been such a problem, ours is so safe, and he would wait for that next week for something to explode at that campus, and he would be very pleased that he'd taken the decision to to go public, and I think that 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 was sort of a first sign, and there were others too, but of a beginning to understand that this is not acceptable, that just because, uh, you know, and there was, there'd been a whole bunch of sort of things about universities, they're young kids, and they're all da-da-da, and, and I think that what was really good is that it began to put in place some measures that began to say this is not acceptable, and I think that this is just growing and growing with a new generation that is, uh, as I said, very much more keen to this sort of uh, this getting information in a new way. And I think this will change politics. Uh, it will make the parties uh, both, I think, be there's going to be some interesting tensions because it will make the parties centrally be more interested in checking out a bit the candidates. There's been some good examples of where there wasn't enough checking out. And at the same time, it comes into sort of a conflict with the the kind of bottoms-up structure that we have now of saying that the local organization gets to choose the candidate. And I think that's going to be a tension. So what happens if the local organization is taken over by a candidate who um, it would have taken a bit more checking into, and uh, the and so you're getting the central organization maybe saying um, we'd like to do some more checking on this, and I think that's going to bring into an interesting tension between the local and the central, and the central organizations are going to have to figure out how to work in this new environment. They're also going to have to be very sensitive to the. I think it's a very large public audience. So it's not just a, a local, as we know from all of these things, they do just go viral and they suddenly, you know, you have a million people across the world checking into this. And I think it'll be interesting uh, in terms of the whole uh, kind of North American context, the whole worldwide context, what kind of 
what kind of social change is happening, what kind of things are no longer tolerated. Some of the reaction to the group of French women who said, oh, come on, this is just spoiling old-fashioned attraction, and then there was this big pushback, no, 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 this is about power, and this is about power politics, and who has the power to tell other people uh, nasty things, to either do their nasty things, but it's coming into this whole range, which I think is really interesting, in sort of what... um, how could how can you treat people uh when you're in uh, how should you treat people when you're in a position of power you shouldn't just sort of say here well you're only a you know you're only a secretary so that wasn't really mm-hmm. important to be a good secretary and so people are saying these kind of things that are really put downs and when you get that and there's some super examples here when you get when the, some of those people are as well as the gender component, there's a whole diversity component, as well as you get the the person who's in the sort of subaltern position, who's not only uh, maybe as well educated in the home country, but certainly has a less good job here, but who's also racialized and, um, and maybe some of the other intersections of diversity. Uh, you really get some beginning to challenge some of those Myths that just being in in power gives you the position to do what you want. So I think it will bring some really interesting, um, I think, uh, lessons for all the politics, all the the levels of politics, not just uh, provincial or federal, but local as well. There's going to be a really um, beginning to shake up what the what our ideas in this society are. Caroline Andrew is uh, joining us. And, and do, do you feel, Caroline, if there were more women involved in politics, that culture of win-at-all-costs might change? I think it will in part. Again, there is some dynamics there because some of the young, ambitious women are can be pretty cutthroat, too, um, when they're being blocked but i think it does i think it will change because there's this huge sort of mass uh reaction so it's not only one person and i think the the gender component is always there and we're certainly realizing you know that that gender component is continually part of it of that relationship and that power potential and so i think it will make a difference but it won't make a difference in every case, in every place, if you want. I think there'll, there'll still be other factors. I think um, class is still an important issue in terms of revenue, in terms of access to power. Uh, I think uh, some of the things we're learning now about uh, disabilities are also uh, about the trans generation. I think that there's a lot of issues, but I think that... Uh, it will help if there's more women and there's more if there's more women with other kinds of if you want uh on the low power level of intersectionality what opportunity does this situation the me too times up movement what do they present to party leaders at federal and provincial levels of government in canada i think they present 
one, they present a terrific example of how to avoid something going viral um, because you, you've got to... So in a way, it's going to make some more desire to control the media, but then on the other hand, it's clear that in a sense you can't control it. I mean, there's been some terrific articles. I've been reading one, you know, in the in the New Yorker, and uh, they, you know, somebody in Trump's administration. And I'll bring that back again, but somebody in Trump's administration says, you know, too many immigrants, and then the next day she sends out a thing saying, and what about your grandfather who came in, you know, uh, too many immigrants, and they bring their whole family, and she writes back the next day and say, what about your grandfather who came in, you know, two thousand. And 14 brought his brother, sister, father, mother, and they all lived together. And she prints it all out, and she's got all the information, all the forms, and uh, that just shames the guy because he's been saying something that was patently uh, racist because it, he seems to feel it didn't belong to him. Uh, that was he was that was just his nice family, and now he's it's being uh, now he's denouncing this so i think it'll make um people in power much more careful about what they say uh or if they aren't careful that's going to cost them big time and so i think it'll be a very interesting um now we're we're still i think in canada we're still not clear how the sort of trump uh uh, the Trump, I don't know what you call it, the Trump sort of wave is going to hit Canada, but it certainly is in part. And I think we've got to be careful of that because I think that it does show some of the the things that we don't want in Canada. We don't want uh, bigotry. We do need a greater population. This great book written recently saying Canada should have 100,000, 100 million population. Sorry, 100,000 is a bit small. But um, so I think that it'll be uh, a really interesting politics because it enters in, I think it's basically the new way people resource information and the new way that even very unusual sources of information, I mean, like this just one woman in uh, New York who's able to send things that just then go whoosh into the, you know, and a hundred million people start watching them. So I think it does change the dynamics of how politics will always go. I mean, there's some things of politics that will stay the same, uh, the sort of power games and the, uh, well, and the attempts to reach an audience, but it, it offers new ways to reach an audience. And I think new ways to reach an audience that uh, has still, it, up a little in the last uh, federal election, the youth vote, but we know that a lot of people um, just don't vote. And But I think this kind of new politics may bring more people to realize the importance or some way that politics really connects to them personally. And I think that will be a very exciting. And uh, I think the gender component is always there, and so too are some of the other components. Caroline, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. Caroline Andrews, the director at the Center of Governance at the University of Ottawa.
Jennifer McIntosh joins us now to tell us more about the city of Ottawa's largest project ever, LRT. And for some reason, it won't be delivered on time. Jennifer. Well, Ed, I've been asking John Manconi since the sinkhole opened up on Rideau Street in June 2016 when we would expect to ride the rails, as it were. And again, last month after they announced that RTG says they're not going to be ready for the May 24th deadline and keep being told there are safeguards in place and that we'll put the trains into revenue service when they're ready to be put into revenue service. But I think as the deadline for the Confederation line to open approaches, uh, we're not getting any more answers than we were a year ago. And it was official on December 15th, transit boss John Manconi said the contractor in charge of building the Confederation line, Rideau Transit Group, wouldn't likely make the May 24th date to hand over the keys. Since the initial announcement, uh, which was a possibility that they wouldn't be ready, we've gotten more sure. The last time was January 24th when he announced to the general public that without considered risk, RTG wouldn't be able to hand over the keys. So several councillors, most notably uh, Gloucester Southgate councillor Diane Deans, has been pushing for more transparency around what's happening with uh, light rail. It's it's historically is the biggest transit project that we've ever been involved in. And the Confederation line alone is a $2 billion project. To put that into perspective, the city's annual budget is $3.42 billion. So everyone with... Any knowledge of the city's inner workings thought June 2016 that when a sinkhole opened up in the middle of the project that that was going to cause delays. And we've also heard about a multitude of safety issues and other problems arising out of the tunnels. Mm -hmm. And Ottawa's sort of dubiously known for that sandy, silty clay. So tunnels have always been an issue. The city solicitor, Rick O'Connor, told council on December 13th when they were passing the budget, there were safeguards in place and the city had the ability to fine the Rideau Transit Group a million dollars if the train was not ready on time. And Mancone said there's several other safeguards in place, such as not handing over money for maintenance and, and the regular type things as the trains aren't running. But that begs the question... What costs are we on the hook for? Are we going to have to use more bus drivers? Because the buses obviously won't be off the roads until light rail's in place. Deferred maintenance on certain buses because they thought they'd be taking those routes off the road. We don't have the answers to those questions, and it looks like we're not getting them anytime soon. The city committee that's responsible for LRT is the Finance and Economic Development Committee, and city staff is supposed to say in the first quarter of 2018, when the new date will be. So we can look to the first meeting of uh, FEDCO, as it's commonly known, is tomorrow. And so hopefully it'll be on the agenda then. And if not, the next one is March 6th. So anything later than that and their update won't be in the first quarter of 2018. But in the meantime, the public is frustrated. There's uh, accessibility advocates that are seeing problems with light rail, seeing problems with the city's ridership numbers in terms of the budget for transit. And Manconi says that the transit model is on its head, that, you know, you can't hire anybody who can tell you exactly what ridership's going to do. But I know that I can tell you if a project that you've been planning for years and years and you can't give a start date, even though you've spent a million dollars on a marketing campaign, you're not going to inspire confidence and you're not going to get those butts in the seats. 
As scientific as we want it to be, unfortunately it is not that. And as I said at Transit Commission, I'll say it over and over again, there is nobody in North America that can predict transit ridership right now. It, the, the whole model has been tipped on its side. Uh, I was recently in Washington listening to my peers talk about how they're all struggling with ridership forecasts. So if anybody can tell you that they can come in and tell you, guarantee you, here's the forecast for what, what next year's ridership in Ottawa is, let's hire them. What Mr. Scrimger and his team does is he gets inputs from every source of information he can get his hands on locally and nationally and internationally. You've heard the, uh, the Treasurer talk about that. We have an outstanding relationship with Stats Canada. We have a phenomenal uh, input from uh, Mr. Willis's team. And Mr. Scrimger takes all those inputs in, the pluses and the minuses, and we've been very uh, transparent in our ridership adjustment, there's two, uh, a 1.2 million ridership drop that we've built into the budget, which translates into $5.2 million. That's our best guesstimate given all the inputs. We've factored in a very modest bump through the Confederation line. Uh, when that goes into revenue service, we've adjusted for the growth areas. We've uh, peeled away the, uh, the bounce we got from the uh, 150 celebrations. But uh, just to get to the bottom line here, I can tell you, if you're looking for us to give you every little piece that says we're going to forecast uh, the 97.2 million riders to exactly that number, we cannot guarantee you that. What we can tell you is the economy is up. That generally drives ridership up. We've done a, an adjustment based on the, uh, the negative drop that we've seen in ridership, and we factored in the growth and the other elements that we know. Uh, and that's what's in front of you. 97.2 million rides, $195 million in revenue is our best guesstimate based on everything that we've uh, seen and heard. And I remind Council that the Transit Commission asked for and we provided an independent look into how we do forecasting. That report is public. They say we do a phenomenal job. They uh, recommended a bunch <laughs> of tweaks and Mr. Scrimger has done that. We want to thank you for joining us for the inaugural Unpublished Ottawa podcast. I'm Ed Hand with Jennifer McIntosh. This is the natural progression of the website and our social media channels. Unpublished Ottawa continues to give you a voice on the issues that impact your daily life. If there's an issue or subject you'd like us to tackle, please share your thoughts with us on the Unpublished Ottawa Facebook page. Until next time, thanks for listening.